may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free. Good to see everyone this morning. Please turn in in your Bible to the book of Galatians chapter 5. And uh, the message today titled, Stand for Your Freedom. I don't know if you've heard about the the successful fisherman that wanted to open up a fish market. And so uh, he had a large sign made that... uh, said, fresh fish for sale. And he was really excited about this new venture. And uh, the first day of operation, one of his friends came by and he said, uh, man, this is great, but I, I've got a, uh, a problem with your sign. You know, you said, you said on your sign, fresh fish for sale. And that really makes, draws into question whether... They really, if you have to tell everybody that they're fresh fish, then they're going to question it. And, and so the fisherman got to thinking about it. He said, okay. So he pulled that sign down and had another sign made. It just said, fish for sale. And the next day, uh, he was uh, functioning there in the uh, fish market. And one of his friends came by and uh, he said, you know, uh, I really like what you're doing, but... I've got a problem with your sign. It says fish for sale. Obviously, uh, um, they're for sale. It just seems redundant that you're saying that they're for sale when obviously you wouldn't have them here if they weren't for sale. And so he got to thinking about it. He pulled that sign down and had another sign made. It just simply said fish. And so the third day of operation, he was having a, a good time in, in his fish market. And one of his friends came by and he said, I really like what you're doing, but I've got a question about your sign. It simply says fish. And uh, it creates really uh, some ambiguity. Are you going to teach us how to fish? Are you going fishing? Uh, what, what in the world does it mean fish? And after that day, the fellow just took his sign down and closed up his shop. And the moral of the story is this. Sometimes you just need to put up your sign and stand by it. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in chapter 5 of Galatians. Put up your sign and stand by it. In chapters, actually the first four chapters, Paul lays out the case for salvation for mankind through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by His merits uh, in His death on the cross and by His grace. And since uh, that message was preached and received by the Galatians, Judaizers came in, like the friends of of the man who was opening a fish market, 
And he said, oh man, it, it's, what you're doing isn't right. You need to add the law. Because God spoke through Moses. He's given us all of the law. And you need to become a Jew. You need to become circumcised. You need to practice the law. It's, it's law and grace. Paul says, no, it's salvation by grace through faith alone. That uh, saying the same as the verse that Brother Gary had up for us. And then, after making the case of salvation by grace through faith alone, he comes to chapter 5, and in the very first verse, notice that he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And here in chapter 5, he's going to continue the case for salvation by grace through faith, except he's going to become even more practical than he had before by contrasting law and grace, bondage and freedom, the legal and the spiritual, the flesh and the spirit. And he does so in two main thoughts that he presents in this chapter. First of all, in verses 1 to 4 and verses 7 through 12, he talks about the perversion of your freedom in Christ. The drawing away from that freedom by the addition of the law. And then he talks about how to practice or how to stand for your Christian freedom in verses 5 and 6. And then beginning in verses 13 down to the end of the chapter. So if you will, and if you have your structured notes, you may want to follow along. And, and the fill-ins will be supplied on the screen as we, as we cover this wonderful chapter. First of all, in, in the first portion of chapter 5, Paul, in talking about the perversion of Christian liberty describes seven ways that this form of legalism undermines Christian freedom. And notice in verse 1, he says, it does so first by imposing a yoke of bondage. He said, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And the idea here is the rules and the regulation and the practice of the law which governs every aspect of life and becomes a great burden to those who would, uh, who would accept it. In verse 2 he says that this legalism negates the work of Christ. He says, I, I, indeed I, Paul say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And the point here is, is this. How are you saved? How are you forgiven? How do you have a standing with God to enter heaven? Is it going to be by your works and by keeping the law? Or is it going to be by accepting what Jesus did for you when He died on the cross? And if you are going to accept your works and the keeping of the law, what Christ did is not going to profit you. 
It's not going to benefit you at all. And then he goes on in verse 3. He says that if, if you are going to go by the legal route, by the law, remember you've got to keep all of it. Look at verse 3. For I, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that, the, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Now the Judaizers came and they were only preaching or they were only communicating to the Gentiles. You've got to become circumcised. You've got to be like Abraham was circumcised. Like all of us Jews are circumcised. But that, that's not the end of the story. That's only the beginning, Paul said. If you do this, you're going to have to keep all the law. Now there are dietary laws. There are laws relative to feasts. There are laws regarding animal sacrifice. There are, there are laws related to all manner of life. And you are not obligated to keep just the circumcision element of it. But all of it. You are under bondage. And if you do this, Paul says, you're a debtor to the entire law. And then in verse 4, he says that this legalism actually doesn't originate in Christ. It, it draws you away from Christ. Look at verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You're, you're, you're drawing away from Christ and you're drawing away from the grace of God that can save you. If you're going to become a, 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 a saint of God by keeping the law. And the fact is, you can't keep the law. Uh, no one has ever kept the law but Jesus Christ. No one can keep it. And Paul is saying, it draws you away from Christ. And then we'll pick up 5 and 6 later, move down to verse 7. He says in verse 7, that lead this legalism... Um, hinders you from obeying the truth. He said, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The point is, are you going to obey the truth that Jesus died for you, was buried and rose again? Or are you going to follow the practice of the law in order for your soul to be right with God? And he says um, that this, this inculcation of the Judaizers is drawing you away and hindering you from being obedient to the truth. And then in verse 8 he says that this legalism does not originate from God Himself, but it originates outside of Christ. Look at verse 8. This persuasion does not come from Him who calls you. Someone would say, well, but the law came from Moses. Well, that's, that's true, the law came from Moses, but God gave it, as pastors taught us in chapter 3 and 4, as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law was given to help us realize that we could not be saved by our own works, by our own fulfillment of what the law says. We cannot be justified. That's the purpose of the law. And that idea that we could be saved by the law is not from Christ. It originated outside of Him. Look at verse 9. That this influence is like leaven. 
He says a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And the point is that they began by talking about being circumcised. But Paul is saying, if you follow this practice, you're obligated to do the whole law. It permeates all, just like leaven permeates all of the dough when it's introduced. So this teaching would permeate all of the idea of you being saved. And you're ultimately fallen away from the things of God that Jesus Christ has provided. And then in verses 10 through 12, he says that this practice, this teaching by the Judaizers occasions the judgment of God. God is against this. Why? Because you cannot, it, it doesn't work. You cannot be justified, that is declared righteous, just as if you never sinned by keeping these rules and laws and regulations because, because you'll fail. And you will not be justified in that way. Look at verse 10 through 12. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. That's a reference to the Judaizers. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. And this is a very strong statement by Paul. Really, I don't have time to, to ex explain it, but if you would study it, the idea is that, that uh, he wished they would just mutilate themselves if this is what they're going to live by and practice and teach. And the point being that God is going to judge them for this because this is a false gospel. It does not work. It is not right. And so this is his, his summary of the perversion of Christian freedom by the practice of legalism. And it perverts that freedom. It draws us away from Christ. It is not what the gospel of Christ presents. But then he turns to the other side of it. And he says, now I want to show you how to practice, how to stand for this liberty that Christ has given to you, this practice of Christian freedom. And there are three elements to the practice of Christian freedom here in Romans, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5. First of all, he says that we uh, exercise, we practice, we stand for our Christian freedom, first of all, by faith. Look at verses 5 and 6. For we through the Spirit eagerly, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by the law? No, by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But what does? But faith working through love. And so his first point is this. You practice Christian freedom, Christian liberty, by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what He did for you on Calvary's cross. And here is a, a reference uh, to uh, all of the teaching of the New Testament regarding the new birth. 
Here is the new birth. How, how do you practice Christian liberty? By faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. In what He did for you. And when you accept Him as your Savior, a transformation begins, which, which begins with the new birth. Now what is the new birth? Well, the new birth is the time you invite Jesus into your life. And when you do that, God's Holy Spirit, Jesus in the person of His Holy Spirit, comes to live in you. And you're born anew. You're born from above. You are born of God's Spirit. Read it in John chapter 3, that whole, that whole chapter, but especially beginning in verse 3 down through verse 7. And the point is that we are saved by grace through faith. And when we accept Christ, we have Christian liberty, Christian freedom by faith. It's the new birth. Now with the new birth comes the nature of God that is planted in us. The idea is this. You know a dog is a scavenger by nature. Now you can take your beautiful little toy poodle and you can, you can bathe him and you can put perfume on him and you can put a beautiful collar on him and you turn him loose where there's a trash can and pretty soon he's going to be going through it. You know why? Because he's a scavenger by nature. Now, we are sinners by nature. We are born with a sin nature. When we are born again, God's Spirit implants in us, with the new birth, a new nature, which has interest and desire for God, and has interest and desire for righteousness, and for, for what is pleasing to God. And this is how this freedom originates. It begins by faith. Secondly, and it's personal faith. Secondly, it, uh, we, we have and practice our Christian freedom by applied love. Look back at 5 and 6 again. Especially verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But what avails? But faith working through love. You see, and we're going to get to this in a few minutes in, in later in the chapter. When you are born again, God's Spirit places within you a love for God. Because, and and uh, 1 John chapter, I believe it's chapter 4 and verse 10 says, We love Him because He first loved us. We accept God's love for us. And when we're born again, God puts His love inside us. And we exercise Christian freedom through applied love. Now look at verse verses 13 as this continues. He says that this applied love is number one, not a license. Look at verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. This is this freedom. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. See, Paul was accused of preaching um, license. That if you accept Christ as your Savior, 
and you don't, you're not under the law anymore, then that gives you a license to live any way you please and commit any sin you want to and, and live as wickedly as you might have any interest and there's no consequence. That's not what Paul taught. He said in verse 13, You've been called to freedom, yes, but don't use this as an opportunity for the flesh. It's not a license. This applied love is not a license. Number two, this applied love is service one to another. Look at the last part of verse 13. But through love serve one another. How do we have, how do we practice Christian liberty? We practice it by faith. We practice it by applied love. It's not license, but it's love that serves one another. And then, thirdly, notice that this love fulfills the law without the law. Verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Applied love is how we practice Christian liberty. Now, um, M. R. D. Hahn was a medical doctor uh, that lived up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who was a fervent follower of the Lord Jesus Christ back in the in the twentieth century, and uh, he had a thriving uh, medical practice. But he felt the call to preach. So in 1922, he gave up his medical practice and began uh, serving as a pastor up there in Grand Rapids. And he pastored two churches. And his ministry was so, uh, uh, so successful that his people encouraged him to get on the radio. And so in 1938, he began what became known as the Radio Bible Class. Some of you may be as old as me, or almost as old as me. And any, anybody remember hearing the Radio Bible Class? MRD on? There's a few of us. He had a gravelly voice. I think his picture should be on the screen. There he is. And uh, uh, he wrote uh, numerous books. And I want to share with you, uh, by the way, Radio Bible, he, he had that ministry until 1965, was on 600 stations throughout the country. And um, he died in 1965 uh, after an auto accident. And uh, during his ministry, they started a little publication that you can get out in the front. I think I have a copy of it here. I guess I didn't bring it out, did I? No. Called Our Daily Bread. It's out on the, in the question uh, booth. You can get one of those with daily devotions. That was started by, by the guy that's on the screen. Now here is how he explains this passage we've been talking about, about um, applied love. He said, while I was still practicing medicine, we had servants in our home. They worked for wages. Their duties were clearly defined and they knew exactly how much was expected of them. They were to work certain hours, do certain duties, and for this they were to receive uh, stipulated wages. Rules and regulations were plain. For instance, the maid must be there at 8 a.m. with an hour for lunch 
and she worked till 5 p.m. She received her two meals a day, was allowed to have Wednesday afternoon off. She was allowed a certain amount of time for sick leave and other fringe benefits. As long as she met her obligations, she received so much per week. We could expect no more from her. She had fulfilled her legal obligations, and we had no further claim on her. Now, compare such an arrangement with the service of another person in our home, my wife. She's not a servant. She does not work for wages. We have no agreement concerning hours or pay. Her duties are not outlined and spelled out for her. She knows nothing about a time clock. Eight o'clock starting time and five o'clock quitting time mean nothing to her. She never thinks about wages, never goes on strike, but gives her unceasing willing service to the home and family 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. She's under no law, no rules or stipulations, nor is there any need for them. I've never told her to do a thing, for she knows what her family needs and fulfills it before anyone has to ask. No need to tell her to dress the children, feed the baby, humor the old man, wash the dishes, or make the beds. There's no grumbling or complaining. She gets tired and weary, but love keeps her going. She is the servant. Uh, if, if the servant is told to put in a little overtime, there's grumbling and dragging of feet because she's a servant. But Mrs. DeHaan doesn't know what the term overtime means. She doesn't ask for double time pay for working on Saturday or Sunday. And why not? And you know the answer. It is love. And that's the way the Christian is to function. And that's the practice of our Christian freedom. It is through personal faith. It is through applied love. And then the third application is, begins in verse, in verse um, 15. Actually, it picks up at verse 5. Here is a reference, and there's so many references to God's Spirit in this chapter. I should have counted them and told you how many, but I didn't think of it, so you'll have to do it on your own. Anyway, verse 5. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So how do we practice our Christian freedom? We practice it by faith, we practice it by applied love, and we practice it by surrender to God's Holy Spirit. Now, before we read this last passage, uh, let me say something about the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is truly and fully God. In uh, John 4.24, God is a spirit, and they who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God's Holy Spirit, He convicts us or, or convinces us uh, of what is right and wrong, that we're sinners. And He convinces us of judgment. And, uh, uh, and He convinces us of the truth of Jesus Christ dying as our Savior buried and rose again. He is uh, the teacher of truth. He is the comforter from God. He comes, a uh, comforter, the idea is he is, um, really it's, it's kind of a, it doesn't fully convey, but it does convey the idea. It's kind of like a sidekick, but more important than a sidekick. He accompanies us. Uh, he is our comforter. 
Uh, what, what does he do when he comforts us? He tells us we're God's children. He helps us with assurance. Not only conviction of sin, but assurance. And uh, he encourages us as our comforter. And then what else does he do? He prompts us to do right. He prompts us to pray. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and think about verse 27 through 29 uh, where the Bible talks about uh, being uh, um, moved internally with groanings that cannot be uttered. That's the prompting of God's Spirit to do right, to do something, to pray. And then the Holy Spirit can be grieved. But here in this passage, beginning in verse 20, uh, 15, we have four things described that the Holy Spirit does for us. Number one, in verses 15 to 17, He strives against the flesh. It says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts or desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, if you want to study this a little more, you may want to jot down Romans chapter 7, because in chapter 7, Paul talks about his struggle with the flesh, the spirit, and his own, his own struggle against covetousness, which, by the way, he doesn't mention in this list, but nevertheless, the idea of striving. It's the Holy Spirit saying, you better not do that. Don't get involved with this. That's the Spirit of God as a Christian can, uh, actually striving with you against your flesh. Look at verse 18. The Holy Spirit, number two, transcends the law. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the creator of the law and He transcends it. He is God. He transcends the law. Then verses 19 to 21, notice that He condemns fleshly works. Verses 19 to 21. And uh, uh, here's a list of about, uh, I think, 14 or so. And by the way, not all the sins of the flesh, but there's plenty of them. Number one, um, look at verses uh, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these. Adultery, which is illicit sex by someone who is married. Fornication, which is illicit sex by the unmarried. Uncleanness, which is filthiness of heart and mind. Lewdness, which is shameless, wanton appetite and action. Um, and then you have to skip down here to verse, uh, verse 21 for the last two. Drunkenness, which is intoxication, which could include drugs, by the way. And revelries, uh, which uh, would be uh, drinking parties and orgies. All of those are sensual sins. And the Holy Spirit convinces us or convicts us and condemns these works when we desire to be involved with them. And then there are superstitious sins. He says in verse in verse 20, idolatry, which are putting things uh, or before or things before God and people and worshiping that uh, which is not worthy of worship, only 
one worthy of worship is God. And then sorcery, which is witchcraft and occult practices. Those are superstitious sins. And then he lists social sins, beginning there in verse 20. Contentions, which is a defiant, which is strife. And hatred, which is a defiant attitude. And then jealousies, which would be rivalries. And wrath, outbursts of anger. And then selfish ambition could, could be lust for power or other things. You uh, Possibly even gambling could be uh, part of that. Dissensions, heresies, envies, uh, murders. These are all um, self-evident. We know the meanings of these. And then in verse 21, um, and the like. He says, I, uh, I, I, I'm not telling you all of them. By the way, he didn't have gluttony in there. That's certainly a sin of the flesh, isn't it? Uh, I would suppose uh, drug addiction, that deals with the flesh, is not there, although drunkenness may, may fit. Uh, greed, you know, and uh, here we have uh, 1 Timothy, love of money, the root of all evil. That's greed, it's not in there. But uh, that's why he said such like, it's such, so many of them, and I can't put them all down here. But notice, he says, uh, Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice... Now the word practice there is not um, a word that suggests uh, uh, a one-time occurrence. Not, not a, a single occasion. This is a, a people who are, have make, this, make, make these activities a lifestyle. This is their habitual practice are not going to heaven. They're not saved. That's exactly what that verse says. And if you want another companion, read in the book of 1 John. He who's born of God's Spirit does not commit sin. The idea there is not that they don't sin from time to time. Because in chapter 6, you're going to find out next week, what about a brother that's overtaken in a fault? Yes, we do sin. But we do not habitually practice and make it a lifestyle. That's what he's saying. And then, th fourthly, the Holy Spirit, verses 22 and 23, he produces holy fruit. The Holy Spirit puts things in our lives to make us what we never could be without him. Now, look... Look at these, uh, look at the, but, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, you know, when I, when I thought of, when I read these and thought about the application of these fruit, I thought of two people. I thought of more than two, but I wanted to introduce you to two. My grandmother, Mary Ripley, um, she had an important influence in my life as a boy, gave me my first Bible, um, talked to me about the Lord Jesus and becoming a Christian, and prayed for me every day. One of the kindest, sweetest, gentlest, faithfulest, uh, patient, kind, loving people 
I've ever known is my dear grandmother. And I just wanted to introduce her to you. And the other lady, my wife called all of her life Granny Key. And she's just like my grandmother Ripley, except uh, she's a Texas girl. And my grandma was a California girl, although she lived in Colorado as a little girl. And then immigrated to Oregon and then to Southern California. But uh, Granny Key, some of the best memories my wife has in her youth and her childhood were with her Granny Key. One of the kindest, sweetest, wisest, most uh, precious people we have ever met. You know, if you think back in your life, you'll probably think of someone who really influenced you that was a Christian. And the influence that came to your life was from the fruit of God's Holy Spirit in their lives. Let's look at this fruit. Love, that's a divine gift. Joy, that's holy optimism. Peace, that's an inward confidence. Um, faithfulness, that's dependent. I'm, I'm sorry, long-suffering. That's patient endurance. Kindness. That's a gentle graciousness. Goodness. That's love in action. Faithfulness. That's dependability. Gentleness, and, and, and other translations call it meekness, which it re really is a reference to the right use of power. You think of meekness... You, you go to Jesus when he was arrested in the garden. Remember that? And remember what he said um, uh, after Peter knocked off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest? Remember what Jesus said, put up your sword? I could call 12 legions of angels to defend me. But this is God's plan. What was Jesus doing? He was restraining his power, was he not? For what? So he could... Die for my sins and yours. That's meekness. Power under control. What it is, is when your kid acts up and you want to beat him to a pulp and you don't, that's meekness. Okay? That's the fruit of God's Spirit working in you. And then the last one is obvious, self-control. Which would be self-discipline. When you, when you need to go on a diet, God's Holy Spirit will help you. Okay, how does all... Now, these are what? Spiritual character, social character relating to other people, and personal character. That's the Holy Spirit working in me. Developing me to be the person that God wants me to be and wants you to be. How does it happen? Look at verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now how do you practice this liberty? Practice this freedom? By surrendering to God's Spirit. The idea of of wrecking ourselves crucified with Christ. This is 
Not the first time in Galatians Paul makes this reference. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That really is, is the encapsulating verse teaching this whole passage. It is what? A surrender to Christ. Reckoning myself dead on the cross with Christ. Another companion is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Well, well now what, what does that verse say? Romans 12, 1. The idea is... Present yourself a living sacrifice. It's as though you were at a birthday party and you had prepared a cake. And you present that cake to the person who had the birthday and you give it up to them. And it's their cake now. What you do is present yourself to Christ like that. Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you do with me, is your choice. But you know He's going to do good with you. And that is what it means to reckon yourself crucified with Christ. In verses uh, 25 and 26, For we, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be, become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, walking in the Spirit is an extension of the idea of being crucified with Christ. I surrender myself to do what you want me to do, Lord. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul began walking in the Spirit because when he was confronted on the Damascus road, do you remember what he said in verse 6? After he found out it was Christ that was speaking to him, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What shall I do, Lord? And that's what you and I need to do. We surrender to the Lord. Say, Lord, I present myself a living sacrifice. I give myself to you. And then I want to walk in the Spirit by saying to you, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Lord, do you want me to talk to this person about you? Lord, do you want me to give tithes and offerings? Lord, do you want me to go to the men's retreat? Lord, do you want me to go to small group? Lord, do you want me to tell the truth? Lord, do you want me to give eight hours work for eight hours pay? Lord, do you want me to be faithful to my wife? Lord, do you want me to squander this money you've given me at the gambling house? What do you want me to do? And a person who surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ like that does not need the law. We're above the law. We're free. We're free indeed. Now what is God's purpose? And we had this written because I, I, I just think it's the whole heart of, of what Romans or Galatians 5 is trying to teach us. God's purpose is to transform you and me into a person who is at peace. A person who is joyful. Someone who is loving. Someone who is patient. Someone who is kind. Someone who is good. Someone who is dependable. Someone who is gentle. 
Someone who is self-disciplined. Those are the characteristics of the great heroes of the Bible. Those are characteristics of Jesus Christ himself. And he wants us to be just like that. Let's pray.